KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzet Torah. You're listening to the Arab Shabbat program, Arab Shabbat Kodesh, Parashat Meshalach, Yudel Shvat, Arab Tubi Shvat. The Arab Shabbat program is Lulu Nishma Shlomo Yosef Ben Chaim Shmuel, and I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell. Just a quick note Parashat Meshalach is a Significant Parsha on a personal level, as it is my grandfather's Bar Mitzvah Parsha. And though I was a young lad when my grandfather passed away, but my father, Ibadel Chaim Tovim Varukim, has been reading this Parsha from all, all, throughout all my memory of all my life, that he would always learn Parshat B'Shalach and Shvi Shal Pesach as well, which is we also read Parshat B'Shalach. Until recently, when a string of uh, Family Smachot have moved him away from Parshat B'Shalach because his oldest grandson, my nephew, who was named for my grandfather, uh, had his Bar Mitzvah on Parshat B'Shalach. And now this week, my uh, cousin's son, my first cousin once removed, Gamliel Bahar, is also celebrating his Bar Mitzvah and Parshat B'Shalach, so he won't be laning this year. I'll be laning, though, just to make sure that someone in the in the family is laning. My, my cousin Gamliel is from the other side of the family. In any case, Mazel Tov to Gamliel and his Bar Mitzvah. It's also, as we mentioned just before, Tu Bishvat. I want to say a quick thing about Tu Bishvat and a, relate to an idea in the Parsha nonetheless. This idea that I'll relate it to Tubishvat really relates to a lot more. It relates to things from a couple of weeks ago in the Parsha. It relates to the time of year. It's cold outside now. Many would uh, point to January as the heart of the winter. January, February really cold months, certainly here in December we were still living in uh, the fall, if not the summer, as far as the temperatures and the weather, and it's interesting to note, just got rid of the fluorescent light in the background, which was making a ton of noise, it's interesting to note that Though it's the coldest part of the winter, winter begins on December 21st, so expect it to get worse after December 21st. But what is the meaning of beginning here? Beginning means December 21st is the shortest day of the year. Now, winter is associated with cold and darkness. That means when the winter begins, December 21st, the days start getting longer. Longer days is something that we associate with the summer. In our minion here in Olin Shvut, we dove in a little bit later during, during the last two months, well, a month and a half, because Vatican is five, if we start five minutes later than we usually start, we can catch the sunrise with our with our with our shacharit. 
And as of next week, we'll be moving back to our regular time at 6.15. For those of you in North America, the fact that sunrise is at around 6.30 now will probably be a shocking discovery here in Israel. What am I getting at here? I'm getting at that at the worst times, or the, depending on what your area of interest is, at the time where the situation is strongest in one direction, the wheels of change are already moving in the other direction. If January and February are the worst months of winter, and some people like the winter, if those are the worst months of winter, then even before the, the outset of winter, in December, December 21st, the days started getting longer. That glimmer of hope that the thing, things are going to change here, it's not going to remain constant, was already in motion. If you hate the summer, and I know people who hate the summer because it's very hot for them and it's very uncomfortable for them, well, the summer starts on June 21st. And the hottest months of the summer are typically July and August. In July and August, the days are getting shorter. That means, again, the wheels of change are already in motion, that the summer is not going to be a permanent fixture. We're already heading towards shorter days, and in other words, we're heading back towards cooler times in the winter. If we look at what we just read in Sefer Shmot, then we can see a similar pattern as well, that when the Shiabud and Mitzrayim got the worst, that is, B'nai Israel, the, the hay was taken away from B'nai Israel, they lost the Teven that they were given, and they were demanded the same workload, which means the slavery got extremely intense at that point, extremely difficult to bear. Well, that was the point where Moshe was already on the scene, and the Makot were imminent. And B'nai Israel knew this. Maybe they didn't believe in what exactly was going to happen, but they were told that the Geula was on its way, Moshe had come. And again, when it was the bleakest, the wheels of change were already in motion. And, you know, you could always throw into here, it's always darkest before dawn. And hopefully that this is something that, if we one more, one more of course example, an important example, that we mark the International Day of Commemoration of of Holocaust Memorial at the during the darkest period, perhaps in Jewish history, arguably not arguably, whatever we want to call it, during the Holocaust, the wheels of motion for an independent Jewish state were well underway. We could argue from when they were underway, were they underway from the 1800s or from the early 1900s, or from the Balfour Declaration. One of the greatest victories for the Jewish people, the Declaration of the State of Israel, that was underway, that movement to create the State of Israel was underway during those darkest years as well. Hopefully, on a personal level, when things are difficult, we can also 
look and see and find how the wheels of motion have already begun, even if it might be the darkest time, the most difficult time, we can point to where the wheels of motion are already moving towards fixing the situation, towards rectifying the situation. Now move on to my second topic. I was sitting with a colleague at lunch this week, and he was telling me about, according to the, I don't remember the name, Rebbe, that it's a skula to say Harshat Haman on Tuesday of this week, because this is the week that we read about Harshat Haman, and Tuesday is Pamaim Titov, and therefore, etc., etc. All right, well, my attitude towards skulas in general are well-known, perhaps, to some of the listeners. Why Tuesday, I asked him, I said, well, those of us who read an Aliyah every day will have read this Aliyah either on Wednesday or Thursday, depending on if you start reading the Parsha on Shabbat in the afternoon or Sunday morning. Why Tuesday? Oh, no, Tuesday is Pamaim Kitov. Well, whatever. He got this in a dream. You can imagine my attitude towards dreams. But what I said to him was, well, you know, my father-in-law, he says Parshat Haman every day. Well, he said, well, of course, that's much better. And... By saying Parshat Haman every day, which is printed in some of those older Sidurim, he is recognizing, and this is the point of this exercise, that our dependence on our food, on our sustenance, is from God. And here I want to address a very difficult issue in modern times. And this will... I'll address it on two levels. One is on our sustenance and our parnasah, the food that we get from God. And I also want to address it in terms of the rain. But we'll start from from our sustenance from God. It's it's very easy in, let's put it this way, the easiest time was in the midbar. In the midbar, when you were not able to hold on to food from day to day, if you try to hold on to food, it rotted. You got your food every day, you were in the middle of a desert and there was water in a miraculous way. Of course you felt that your sustenance was from God. There was no way of thinking anything else. Going beyond the Midbar and to all times before modern times, I think there was also this feeling when there were not ways of saving up money, of saving up food. Things were much more fluid. Things could really change from day to day. And the feeling, if one wanted to cultivate that feeling, of being dependent on God, it was very easy to cultivate that feeling because it was 
clear that nothing was certain. This year's crop could be good, it could be bad. The fact that I have money today doesn't mean I have money tomorrow. The fact that there's food in the world today doesn't mean there's food in the world tomorrow. Today in Western society, there are places on the, in the world where the, the situation that I described still exists. But today in Western society, those of you who are listening to Ashir on an iPod or on a computer, probably part of Western society, We have salaries, we have pension plans. True, we could get fired tomorrow. We could lose our job. Things could get a little bit more dire. But those of us who are might get fired soon have sort of a premonition. We might be looking into the next job already. We've saved some money in any case. We're not going to starve tomorrow as a result of not getting our paycheck. We might have some sort of support system. We live in societies where there are stockpiles of wheat. There are stockpiles of food. We're not worried that tomorrow we might be starving. We plan for a year from now. We plan for our retirement. We are foolish if we don't. We are irresponsible if we don't. It's very hard to have a feeling of being dependent on God. It's very hard to cultivate that feeling. It's a very different world. On a similar note, The rains here in Israel. Uh, those who have been listening regularly know that due to the fact that we have been in a bad situation as far as rain for five years here in Israel, I have been encouraging people to save Va'anenu since the beginning of the winter. Since Zayin Cheshwan, when we start asking for rain, I say, ask for rain with Va'anenu. We're in the midst of a drought, and there's no reason to wait to see if the drought is continuing. We can start asking for rain in an intense way from the beginning of the winter. Then there was a very balmy period indeed, and certain communities started saying Va'anenu, and then we had a big downpour of rain. Some people continued, some people stopped. I'd like to just point out for the record, so we had a big downpour of rain, so now we're about at the average, and once again, after five years of drought, Having an average rainfall, which is average for the season right now, who knows what will be in two weeks or two months from now. Hopefully it'll be good. In any case, having the average for one year certainly doesn't solve the problem of the receding Kinerid for five years. In one community, the decision to say Va'anenu, the extra prayer for for the lack of rain, fell out on a week where the weather reports were saying there's going to be a big downpour this week. And there was a big downpour that week. 
And the rabbi of that community said, we don't need to say va'aneinu. Because we know there's going to be rain now. And this raises, an, this attitude raises a huge dilemma in my mind, again, about how we pray for things in a world where we know everything. In a world where we know there's going to be rain, we don't need to pray for rain because it's going to rain tomorrow. Next week, we don't need to pray for rain because the weather forecaster says there isn't going to be rain. We even have long-term weather forecasts. How do, in a modern society, when we have too much information and too much protecting us, can we pray and feel our dependence on God? Here an example where the rabbi of the community, and I personally completely disagree with this attitude, because what, what, it's, what message is this sending? It said, don't pray for rain, we already know the rain is coming. But yeah, the, the weather reporters were right, and they usually will be right within a short-term range, when they're going to tell you it's going to rain a ton, I don't recall in recent history, where, you know, it just rained a couple of millimeters at the end. It's a dilemma. In modern society, it's much harder to cultivate a relationship with God, certainly a relationship of dependence. Some people will tell us, look at all the people who lost their fortunes with Madoff and the Lehman Brothers and all these different things that happened, and perhaps they're right. But again, that means it takes uh, the equivalent of an economic natural disaster for people to notice these things, and from what I read out there, it's questionable how many people have dr dramatically changed their lifestyles as a result of this and really internalized that things aren't always as they seem and things are a little bit more precarious than they seem. A challenge for us in the modern world, how we cultivate a feeling of dependence on God when we know whether it's going to rain or not, so we might not pray in either case because it's not going to rain, why am I praying? Or it is going to rain, why am I praying? When we know we have a paycheck, when we know we have money in the bank, when we know we have a pension plan, how do we pray? There are answers, but our time is up. Shabbat Shalom, and I'll pass over the microphone to Rabbeck. This week's Pasha is Parshat B'Shalach. There are a number of well-known halachot uh, learned from the Pasha, associated with the Pasha, concerning Hilchot Shabbat, for instance, Lechem Mishnah and Sudash Lishit, but eating on Shabbat has to do with the Pasha of the man. Uh, so I'm going to try to pick things which are somewhat less well-known. The first one is from the very beginning of the Pasha. Jews are leaving Mitzrayim, Jews are leaving Egypt, and they're accompanied by an Amud Anan Yomam, the Amud Eishleida, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Lo Yamish Amud Anan Yomam, the Amud Eishleida, the Says that these pillars would not leave 
the pillar of cloud would not leave by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, before the people. And Chazal understood this Pasuk to mean more than the fact that there was always a pillar, but that the pillars overlapped. The Mechilta on the spot says, Lo yamish amud ha'anan, magid ha'katub sh'adayin haya amud ha'anan kayam, v'amud ha'esh tzomech. Apparently, because this is physiology, that says that neither one of them would move. But they did move. They moved when the time was up. Uh, or other Mephashim suggest it's because the Pasuk is basically being repeated twice, uh, Rashi says. But the Chazal understood the Pasuk to mean that the Amud of the day is still there, and already the Amud of is beginning to appear. In other words, there was some overlap between them. And what's the point of that? So the Mechilta adds, L'lamdacha derech eretz min ha-Torah, to teach you derech eretz min ha-Torah, the Torah teaches us derech eretz, al arvei Shabbatot. There's a lesson to learn from this concerning Erev Shabbat. What does it mean? It's a Gemara in Shabbat, Tavchav Gimel. tells a story. Devitu, the Rav Yosef, havet ma'achra, Rav Yosef's wife would light Nerot Shabbat very late. Obviously not on Shabbat, but very close to this man of Shabbat. Me'achra, she would delay umadleketa. Amala Rav Yosef, Tanya, lo yamish amud ha'anan yomam amud ha'esh layla. Melamech amud ha'anan mashlim lamud ha'esh. Mud ha'esh mashlim lamud ha'anan. And he quoted this pasuk, a different form- formulation than the Mechilta. So you look from this pasuk, Vayamish Amud Anan Yomam Amud Eish Laila, Sha'amud Anan Mashlim La Amud Eish. The Amud Anan, the pillar of cloud, would uh, fill in, would complete, that would complete the time of the pillar of fire, and so to speak, and vice versa. In other words, from the fact that God would bring the pillar of fire, not at the last second, in other words, when it became night, this one disappeared, this one would appear. And God obviously could have done it exactly without any overlap whatsoever because He's God. Nonetheless, God brings, the way the Mechut understands it, brings the pillar of fire somewhat earlier when the pillar of, of, of cloud is still there. So it's coming early. So that when the pillar of cloud leaves, already there should be a pillar of fire. So Rav Yosef said you should light candles the same way. If you don't light candles at the very last second, it's still daytime, it's still Friday, it's really still Friday. And therefore it's still pillar of cloud time, it's still Friday time. But if you're going to have a pillar of fire, if you're going to have Nevot Shabbat, apparently the specific application of this principle of always starting something earlier than you need to, since it's learned from the story about the pillar of fire, uh, apparently the immediate application was in fact in fire in Shabbos candles. But you should not light Shabbos candles when the daytime is already gone or about to go, almost gone. But one should fill in for the other. And if we told his wife, Rabbi Yosef, not to light right before Shkia, but to light earlier. The Gemara continues. She said, okay, she started doing it very, very early. So someone told her, 
The old man told her, you shouldn't do it too early either. And Rashi explains, because it has, it has, it's still Nevot Shabbat. If you did it Friday morning, nobody would know that it's Nevot, Nevot Shabbat. And Rashi says, No one would know, it's not apparent. It's not obvious that it belongs to Shabbat. I think the second point really gives us the reason for the first. Words, what is this talking about? Everything has to do early. This is the marker for being a yaka. If you go to do something, come ten minutes early. I, I don't think that's what the Nidish means. Lighting Shabbos candles is done l'chvod Shabbat. And if it's l'chvod Shabbat, that would not be done at the last second. If it was merely pragmatic, you light candles because it's dark, then you light candles when it's dark. When I come home to my house and the sun sets, I don't turn the lights on before it's dark, before I need to. Why, why waste money? But since lighting Shabbos candles isn't only pragmatic, functional, that it should be light when it's dark outside, but it's Kvot Shabbat, the honor of Shabbos, so the honor of Shabbos includes doing it before you need to do it. This, this, deliberately so that it should be clear that it's not merely done for purely pragmatic reasons. And the way to, that I show them not do it only because I can't see anymore is to do it early. Now, in a sense, because of the other halacha, Shalom Yakdim. What's wrong with lighting candles two hours early? The Lomin Kachish Shabbat. And it's not apparent anymore that it's done for Shabbat. In other words, the candles have to look like they're done the cover Shabbos. So, too late they look like they're done because of the dark. Too early they look like, I don't know, they're done for some other strange reason, but not for Shabbos. So the show that you're lighting it not just for Shabbos, but Lichvot Shabbat is not totally separated, not too early, but not at the last second either, in which case, well, it's clear you're doing it because of Shabbat, you're not doing it because of Shabbat Kodesh, you're doing it because of Shabbat night. You're doing it because of the darkness, not because of Shabbat. And I think that would be, although that's the example given, it would apply to other examples as well. Obviously, the original case is not about Shabbos. It's talking about every day when the Jews are coming out of Egypt. Things which are done lechavod should be done in such a way that demonstrate the lechavod. Rabbi Yosef lechavod, and therefore the application the Chazal thought of was hadlakat nevat Shabbat. Hadlakat nevat Shabbat is kavod Shabbos, and the candles have to be clearly kavod Shabbos. And therefore you don't do it at the last second. Speaking practically from my own experience, there's a tendency to do it at the last second. You're very busy on Shabbat, and you're running around <coughs> trying to get everything ready. The woman's still finishing the last cooking. The man is finishing. Setting the table or getting anything ready or getting dressed. And all of a sudden you realize that if you wait another minute, it'll be too late. You're not, you're not allowed to light candles on Shabbat, and therefore you light candles. So you should light candles earlier. The minute B'chol Am almost universally accepted, is to light candles 20 minutes before Shkia, before the setting of the sun. This might, or might not, but it's... People suggest that this is connected to the opinion of the Uraim, which we do not observe. But the Uraim actually thinks that Shabbos actually begins 20 minutes before Shkia. So, we don't think Shabbos begins then, but because it's obviously close enough that somebody thought it did, so it means you're already in the, in the framework of it's almost Shabbat. Uh, the definition might be, some of people have suggested, based on the Gemara, that 20 minutes before Shkiah is when the sun is setting behind the trees, the tree line. In other words, it's a little bit above true sunset, horizon sunset. But in practical experiences, because we very rarely have a blank 
horizon before our eyes. There are trees, all that, the other things, buildings, etc. So um, the sun actually sets before it sets, which I would put another another way of, another way of putting it. Sun set is when Shabbat begins, but the sun is setting. When does one say the sun is setting? You might say the sun is setting as soon as it goes past its peak, past noon. Yeah, but we're not conscious of it. Because it has to be somewhat connected to the ground. So there's a certain period of time, approximately. The minute is to, to do 20 minutes, or sometimes 18 minutes. And that represents when the process of the setting is already, is already begun. Uh, those who've been to Eretz Yisrael know that in Yushalayim, the minig is 40 minutes. It's different in the rest of the world. Kind of lining in the, on the calendars. Yushalayim is listed as 40 minutes before, uh, before Shkia. There are other places which have other minigam as well. Chifa, minig is 30 minutes. But, uh, but Yushalayim as well. No, Yushalayim is 40 minutes. An extra 20 minutes could be... And then uh, the post can relate to it as being halach. It's the minute you have to do it. At uh, to what extent that, let's say, on Shabbat, Erev uh, Shabbat on Hanukkah, you have to light Shabbat, uh, Hanukkah candles before you light Shabbos candles. But you're supposed to light Hanukkah candles obviously at night time, but on Shabbat we light earlier. So in Shulayim they light 45 minutes before Shkia, 41 minutes before Shkia, uh, which creates a great deal of difficulty for getting the Shabbos candles to burn long enough. They have to burn through those 41 minutes and after Shkia until half an hour after Tzayt HaKochavim. But since the minig, HaMechayev, the obligatory minig, is to light candles approximately 40 minutes before, so people should, uh, you, should okay, you should try to do that as well. And our halacha, which we learned from this thing, is to take very seriously at least the 20 minutes, which is minig Yisrael. You really are not supposed to wait until it's too late. Or, of course not. You're not supposed to wait till it's almost too late. The thing that's getting you to light, I'm talking about motivation here, Unfortunately, sometimes we light because we're saying, I have to light and it's almost Shabbos. In other words, the actual thing that gets you to actually do it is the impossibility of lighting any later. So the Mechilta and the Gemara Shabbos is pointing out that makes it look like you're lighting because it's dark, but it happens to be you can't light when it's dark because you know I light candles on Shabbos. Light when it's still light. And that requires, and light when you don't have to light. Light because you want to light, not because you have to. So you shouldn't feel the pressure, I'm adding, not just you shouldn't feel that it's too dark, you shouldn't feel the pressure of Hilchot Shabbos on your head. You should like because you're saying to yourself, Shabbos is coming, I want to light candles, not because, oi, someone yells, husband yells to the wife, the wife yells to the husband, it's almost Shabbos, you better hurry up. You shouldn't hurry up to light. You should light because, and this is the shir that's taken of 20 minutes before Shabbat. So that's our first halacha for today in Pashat B'Shalach. And the second halakha that I wish to mention, well known, and the source from our Pasha is also well known, but I'll take just one or two minutes just to remind ourselves of uh, this halakha, which might in fact be the oraita. It could be this source is an actual legal halakha source. This is a machloket bishonim. Ozi in the Shirat Hayam, Moshe Rabbeinu said, Ozi bizimrat ka, vayihi li lishua, zekeli ve'anvehu. Elokei aviv va'aromemenu. This is my God ve'anveihu. What does the word ve'anveihu mean? It's a difficult and unusual word. So the Gemara in Shabbat, of Kutlam and Gimel says that the word ve'anveihu is from the Shavesh na'eh. Na'veh is like na'eh. Beautiful. And ve'anveihu is a verb meaning I will make 
it or him beautiful. Which we learn halacha hitnaeh lefanav b'mitzvot. Um, Tutify, make, make before God the mitzvot. How, how do you make something beautiful before God? Make the mitzvot beautiful before God. And then the Gemara gives examples. Asay lefanav sukana'a lulav na'a shofar na'a tzitzit na'a sefer na'a you should make your sukkah beautiful. That's why we adorn a sukkah. Lulav na'eh. The Gemara in sukkah says explicitly, it doesn't mean you should have just only a pretty lulav, a nice looking lulav. But the eged, tying up the aravot and the hadasim to the lulav in an aesthetic manner. What we call, the word that is used is eged, the, 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 um, the bindings. The eged of a lulav is because of na'eh. It should be it should be beautiful. Shofar na'eh, tzitzit na'eh, sefer Torah na'eh, which the Gemara says means dio na'eh, a good, beautiful ink, and kulmus na'eh, a good a a, a good pen, lavlar uman, a scribe who is an expert doesn't mean only expert in the halachot. That's Simple. Lavlar uman means a a skillful scribe. He has a good handwriting. The the the, the, the script of the Sefer Torah, of the Megillah, of the Mezuzah should be beautiful. In fact, most can say that applies even to Mezuzah, which you can't see. Because it's well. But it should be beautiful anyhow. And you should get a, a sofa who's good. The Kochob That's why Sefer Torah is talking about. You uh, clothe it with beautiful cloth. What we call the mental, the, the dress of the Sefer Torah should also be adorned. This is the mitzvah of Hitna'eh Lifanav and Mitzvot. There are many poskim who think that this is a real, a real source. It's the Oraita. There's a mitzvah mid the Oraita. Lihitna'ot be mitzvot. That all mitzvah, every mitzvah you do should be done in an aesthetically pleasing and a beautiful manner uh, because, because that's the proper way to do it. Now, what's really the reason for this? So it's hinted at in the Roshan of the Gemara. Hitna'eh Lifanav Mitzvot. The Pasuk. Isn't talking about mitzvah. The Sukh says Zekeli Ve'anveyu. So literally that would mean Ve'anveyu is God. You should make God beautiful. But we can't make God beautiful. It doesn't make any sense. So Chazah say it means Litna'ot B'mitzvot. But they said the language is Litna'eh Lifanav B'mitzvot. Making the Chetzah Shal Mitzvah. Making the object. Love. The Shofar. The Sukkah. Sefer Torah, making them beautiful is lifana. I think in other words, it's our way of showing that the mitzvah is not just something you have to do, but it's a connection between yourself and God. And therefore, when you hold a mitzvah in your hands, you are to some extent standing before God. Um, I'm speaking somewhat circumspectly, you know, it's a matter of circumspection because there's a halachic definition of what it means lifnei Hashem. When you daven shmonesha, you lifnei Hashem. When you uh, uh, put on tzitzit, you're not lifnei Hashem in the technical halachic manner, but I'm saying to some extent, being engaged in a mitzvah, holding a mitzvah in your hands, so the mitzvah represents God's word. You do it because God told you. And therefore, lifnei lifanav, it's kavod l'ashem, it's va'anveihu. It's, so to speak, making God beautiful, not in a literal sense, but 
showing that God is beautiful in my eyes. The things which I do because of Him, the felt that I hold in my hands, which He told me to do, I make them beautiful. It's not just that because people should admire it. I don't think it's even a pragmatic consideration of it. They're beautiful, so people will, I don't know, other people will want to do the mitzvah. No, no, no. It's making mitzvah beautiful is kvot Hashem. It makes a lot of sense. I think we all felt it instinctively because it's Sefer Torah. Because Sefer Torah is Kedusha. It's God's presence. Even mitzvot, which don't have Kedusha. Tzitzit, Shofar. But showing, by, by beautifying them, we show that we recognize the mitzvah is Mei, Mei Hashem. Some Pesukim think it's only the Rabbanan. It's not a, it's not smachta. It's not literally the meaning of the Pesuk. Everyone agrees that there is such a mitzvah and a number of most different places that talk about it. And the Gemara Bakam, I just want to mention the Gemara Bakam before I finish, that says, Ad Shlish. Costs money to make something more beautiful. The Gemara says, Ad Shlish. Rashi says that means that if you have two possibilities, you have a cheap etrog and an expensive etrog, so you're obligated to put an extra third, an extra 33% over the base price to get the better one. Anyone knows the etrog market knows that's not that simple to determine what's the base price and what's the next stage. But uh, Rashi says, you have two etrogim. That's what was offered to you. One simple, one mehudar. So you should spend up to 33% more in order to buy the more mehudar. The one that is, in the case of an etrog, more, um, more beautiful. There are other interpretations like among the Bukhama, but that's a standard, that's a standard interpretation. And uh, although obviously in some areas, I think people even go overboard in this. You know, you know beautiful uh, uh, Shabbos utensils or beautiful Esau box. And I think about is maybe we don't pay that much attention. Kumar mentions tzitzit. Tzitzit should be beautiful, not scraggly threads. And I think we think of other mitzvot, which perhaps we don't pay enough attention, that we do a mitzvah, it has to be beautiful, it has to be bahadar, behidu u bahadar. And that's it for this week. We'll be back next week in Parshat Yitro. And until then, Shabbat Shalom Uvivorach.